today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Last night, we saw the new councillors and incumbents inaugurated into the uh, this council session. Uh, Mayor Fred spoke. Here is a piece of what he had to say. The great advantage of the Hamilton LRT project is that it is an approved project and shovels are scheduled to break ground in late 2019. It will mean thousands of construction jobs. These people will be shopping, buying groceries, buying appliances, buying cars and trucks, supporting our local businesses. All right, let's let's introduce you to one of the new councillors and, and what that must be like to go through uh, this process uh, as a newbie. Esther Pauls is joining us, Ward 7, City Council, uh, City of Hamilton, of course, and with us now. Esther, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Oh, thank you, Scott. So Love what's the on your show. So what's the experience like going through this, the pomp and circumstance and such? How do you feel today? I, you know what? I got up early and I'm at work and I love it. I actually been waiting for six weeks before I could get started. So uh, I was looking forward to this day. And yes, it was an honor and a privilege for me to represent Ward 7 and to be there. And uh, today I'm early in the morning and getting work done. Exciting time to be on city council in Hamilton, but also uh, as uh, the mayor moves forward with LRT and his vote and such confirmation of that. Do you still think the council is going to be divided on this as a newbie coming in? How do you how do you position yourself in this and and, and try to keep uh, peace in the land? Well, uh, actually, I'm still open-minded, and I, I was talking to the mayor, and we're talking, and you know what? I believe that probably it's already decided, uh, and especially when the premier said that uh, LRT it is, uh, we still have to uh, look at it. But, um, yes, uh, we're going to talk about it, and I think all of us, all of us in council, work well together. I think uh, there's a unity there, so I want the public to know that uh, even though I represent Ward 7, we are there for the whole city. So. And what do you think the biggest challenge is going to be for you as a newcomer there? Well, actually, the, it, it, they say that it takes time to learn and to know things around and who to ask. And uh, uh, I think once I know uh, my way around, I think it's going to be uh, uh, pretty good. I, I, I've already, in one day, I've learned so much about uh, some budgets. I had a budget meeting this morning, I'm one-on-one, which was good. And uh, so I'm on three committees, uh, the Health and Safe Committees. I'm on Public Works, the BIA, a few others. And uh, it's going to be great. It's going to be great to learn and to know and to make a decision on certain issues. Uh, what about other counselors and their response? Uh, any reaction, any advice that they've given you? Well, the, actually, all the council have been so great. We actually, when few of them, we went out for coffee and talked about things. The great advice is to make sure that our constituent is well looked after and uh, take your time to understand the issues. Think about how we answer things and uh, and just learn from uh, experienced counselors, and that's what I'm doing. Whenever I talk to politicians, uh, especially new ones that have just started in, mm-hmm. uh, lots of great ideas, lots of uh, heart, lots of passion, want to, to help and to change things. But often what happens once uh, um, uh, someone gets, you know, sort of sucked into the, the system of politics, the politics and the vortex that is government, that you kind of get lost in the sauce. How are you going to keep your head above water and and, uh, and try to do the good that we know that you want to do? You know what, Scott? I've been a person with passion all my life. Mm-hmm. I love working hard. I don't think that's going to change. 
even if I stay here for a lifetime, which I, you know, I'm just saying I will always have the passion to work hard. I will always have the passion towards people, and nothing will change that in me. Nothing. I, no matter what. I will always go into my work with passion and caring. And I think the people of Hamilton, that's what they're looking. They're looking for people who do not get tired of saying, oh, this again, you know, this issue again. I will be the type of person that I will always keep my passion towards uh, issues. So you could, I could guarantee that. Scott. You're certainly, and I, and I think your track record uh, speaks of that. Uh, that being said, uh, a very exciting time to be on uh, council, to be a yeah part of Hamilton, uh, just yes, with what it it's going through. Talk a little bit about that in Hamilton moving forward and, and, and what your vision is for this city. Well, you know what? The vision of the city, it is growing. Everywhere I go, there's construction. Everywhere. Downtown, up the mountain, everywhere. Uh, my goal since it's Ward 7, I, I look at the center of where I am and I look at Lime Ridge Mall, the potential there. I look at different uh, roads, the potential of uh, growth, good growth, uh, the potential of so much. We're expanding city. I cannot believe how fast it's growing. And it's exciting time. And even though uh, yesterday, uh, even the mayor said it might be recession, I, I don't see it right now. I see growth and I see a lot of potential in Hamilton, uh, especially up on the mountain. As you know, the airport, it's one of the fastest growing airport we have. I just actually had a little holiday and I took that airport. I love it. Yeah, it yeah. is Fantastic. I sat with a lady that said she came all the way from Mississauga to go to Hamilton Airport. You know why? It was easier, she said. Yeah. And I said, really? And it was exciting. It's exciting to say people would rather come to Hamilton to fly out. So Hamilton Mountain has such a great potential. Um, and the downtown. And I think all councils need to realize that it's the city we want to improve the whole city. It's not the downtown versus Hamilton uh, Mountain or Stony Creek or Ancaster. So I think as council, if we all work together, we all take our own little interest of what represents us, like the Hamilton Mountain, and then we all work together to make it grow. So. Do, you, do you think the LRT debate is finally over? Are we just moving on now, Esther? Well, I, it might not be over with some council, even with me. I need to know more. But it's sort of, I, I kind of feel the more I talk, uh, and read about it. There is so much construction downtown. Uh, maybe uh, it's a thing that it's already decided because, as you know, Scott, it's been talked about for 10 years. Mm. And I think the new council, the, especially the four new ones, I know there's uh, Brad Clark who was in council before, it's been talked about for so long. I think the people of Hamilton are tired to keep hearing it. Yes, no, yes, no. <laughs> It's got to stop somewhere. Yeah. And I'm just saying to my constituent, I will look at it again. I've been reading about it, and I will make the best decision that is good for the city of Hamilton and for the Hamilton Mountain. And, and so that is my approach to everything I will look at. You know, uh, how does it benefit Ward 7? or the mountain, mm -hmm. and how does it benefit the other parts? And I, I think if we all look at it this way, we will have a great council. We will have great uh, people. You know what? The, I, I, as I talk to all the other councilors, we are people just like everybody else. We want our city to grow. We want our city to be the best 
place. We could raise a child. Our best place to do sports, I'm into sports. So I love mm-hmm. the, the opportunity to bring sports back into Hamilton big time because it's so important for our health, you know, and for our children and all that. So that, that's what we bring. Every council brings their own little um, desires of what they would like to do for Hamilton. Esther so. Pauls has been with us. New blood in the council. <laughs> Ward 7, City Council, City of Hamilton, uh, newly uh, minted, I guess, just yesterday. Esther, thank yes. you so much for the time. Good luck. Okay. And thank you, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Of course, uh, council uh, uh, sworn in last night and Mayor Fred talking about LRT and moving forward. Let's bring in Ryan McGrill, raise the editor, raise the hammer. He is with us now. Ryan, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Hey, Scott. Great to talk to you. New council, same old problems moving forward. I just talked to Esther Paul. She's still kind of sitting on the fence being up on the mountain there. Uh, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, obviously it's been a difficult, uh, very controversial issue. Any big transformative project almost invariably is difficult and controversial. There's nothing sort of new or unexpected here. And Hamilton is not exceptional in struggling to move forward. But that doesn't mean that we should just sit on our hands forever and not make these decisions that have to be made. So uh, how um, concerned are you moving forward? And I know I've asked you this question a bazillion times and until, you know, we hear the bells and you're riding on it, you're not convinced. That being said, how does it make you feel with the new council? Uh, is it is it as uphill a battle as it was, especially with the Ford announcement? I guess what I would say is that we could be in a much worse position than we are right now. Um, you know, That's a very good way to look at it, Ryan. <laughs> considering that the mayor was elected with with an absolutely... Uh, commanding mandate. I mean, he won 54%. That's an absolute majority of the vote. He won 13 out of 15 wards across the entire city. He won 189 out of 220 polls. So his support is not concentrated. It's not just one little part of the city. His support is citywide. You know, and the the anti-LRT, I hesitate to call it a movement, but certainly the, uh, you know, the main players trying to stop this from happening insisted on making this municipal election a referendum on LRT. You know, there were lots of really important issues that we needed to be talking about. And instead, we spent the entire campaign talking about LRT, which is a a vote that's already been made and it's a decision that should already be behind us. So I say we hold them to it. Yes, it was a referendum on LRT. Uh, The pro-LRT candidate who has staked his political uh, career and his legacy on this was re-elected with a commanding majority. It's time for council to respect that put it to bed and move forward and start focusing on problems where they can actually make a difference. Do you think the attitude will change moving forward or do you think someone's going to look for any loose thread to yank on? They're always looking for loose threads to yank on. I mean, it's, you know, the, 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 the group that's been trying to stop LRT has seized on every opportunity to just stall, delay, undermine, confuse, mislead. Uh, I mean, it's been a relentless campaign to try and put the brakes on this thing. And I don't expect that's going to stop anytime soon because it hasn't stopped up until now. But the council needs to lead with vision and purpose and a little bit of courage. And they need to just stop listening to the naysayers and the squelchers and just do the right thing for once and for all. What about the premier's response uh, while uh, commenting on the Grimsby Hospital? Uh, No, I didn't hear his his most recent comment. But my understanding is that what he's been saying is that he said um, if uh, if the mayor the mayor got elected on that and if he wants uh, the LRT they're going to get their LRT. Well, uh, so that's that that is that is the last statement I've heard. Yeah, and that's great. It's encouraging. 
you know, there's no really good reason for the province to be against this. The, the procurement and financing model doesn't hurt the province's books. Um, the economic case for it is strong. I mean, this is a net benefit for the province as a whole, especially as, as in addition to the city. I mean, this is a, a pro-business, uh, pro-investment government. They should be in favor of it. Uh, in a sense, though, Ryan, is it good to have people questioning like this all the way along to make sure we do it right? I mean, um, as long as it doesn't become a detriment to the process, is, is this all healthy? Uh, it's healthy up to a point. You know, challenging and questioning and asking if we're doing things the right way, uh, that assumes uh, a certain amount of good faith on the part of the person doing the questioning. I think it's absolutely vital that we very carefully study how we're implementing this. But there's a difference between saying, hey, let's ask the tough questions, make sure we get it right. You know, and I'm going to give the benefit and the credit to uh, Councillor Pauls. I believe that's what she's doing. I think she's approaching this with good faith. And, uh, you know, and as a new councillor, certainly she's got a steep learning curve to catch up to the amount of information that the more incumbent councillors have had. I think she's asking tough questions and hopefully she's going to be satisfied with the good answers that are available. Uh, but there are some people who are not trying to make the project better. They're just trying to stop it. Yeah, and we'll always have those, I guess. We've seen that before. Uh, Ryan McGreal has been with us. Editor, raise the hammer. Ryan, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Likewise. It's always a pleasure. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. A review of Justin Trudeau's turbulent visit to India early the, earlier this year says the RCMP should have alerted the Prime Minister's protective detail that Jasper Atwal, a man with serious criminal record and a history of violence, might turn up. Pipe, uh, Public Safety Minister Ralph Goodale says the Mounties will have to examine where they went wrong, but Goodale says the Prime Minister was never in any real danger. This report indicated some communication uh, difficulties internally, uh, and obviously that will uh, that will that will need to be examined with a great deal of care. But the RCMP have made the point that they took all of the steps that were necessary to make sure that at all times the prime minister was safe Did and they secure. Do all right, uh, there you've heard from the safety minister in regard to the safety of uh, the prime minister. Let's bring in David Harris in Cygnus Strategic Group, an, ex- uh, an expert in terrorism, and is with us now. David, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Oh, pleasure is always, Scott. So is this uh, a communication breakdown? Is that what this is all about? Well, it seems to be a little broader than that. I mean, yes, there were, of course, grave national security issues implicated in this, but uh, also a fairly impressive helping of a kind of vaudevillian atmosphere where uh, some key messages that uh, I guess should have been received by or integrated by uh, a unit of the RCMP, key in the uh, Prime Minister's visit and associated matters, uh, just didn't get to or through the person because that individual was on leave. That seems a little um, odd, doesn't it? Uh, RCMP wasn't in that day, so therefore it was left unchecked? Uh, it's, uh, it's quite astonishing, but uh, the kind of thing one can find in any sort of major bureaucratic organization, and uh, grossly unacceptable, of course, in this kind of context, uh, people are not serving in uh, police and security organizations for their health or to develop pensionable time. They have a clear mandate, which generally they execute to, to a very considerably successful degree. But this was uh, really an absurdity. It wasn't the only one. And uh, the role, though, of the prime minister's office in this should, it seems to me, be uh, ventilated significantly. 
because uh, if you look at what the uh, report of the Committee of National Security people uh, among the parliamentarians wrote, I mean, they were talking about uh, expanding guest lists for the uh, two two particular events, uh, one in Mumbai, India, the other in Delhi, India, at which the uh, prime minister uh, was to appear. So uh, the fact that the prime minister would be there, that his family would be there, that a delegation would be there is uh, an obvious indication of the great sensitivity of the situation, and particularly when all of this has occurred against the fraught background, going back so many years, it's almost hard to count, of uh, Sikh extremism in Canada and in India, and the Indian government's extreme sensitivity to that fact, along with related perceptions, rightly or wrongly, that the uh, Trudeau government has been soft on that very kind of extremism. Um, So what you had were these uh, two events, these have been the flashpoints, and um, at both of them, there had been issued an invitation for somebody by the name of Jasper Atwal to appear as a guest. And you'll remember how famously Mr. Atwal appeared in a photograph with the wife of the prime minister at mm-hmm. the first of these events. Now, there was some scrambling after that, possibly thanks to media or other inquiries uh, following it. And uh, his invitation to the second event was rescinded. But they're also, if you look at the reports, and they're heavily censored, there may be an indication that there may have been one or two other less than desirable individuals who may have received and have had rescinded their invitations as well. Now, what makes this, um, I don't know whether, again, it's the gravity of the things that will be most impactful for most people or the low farce involved, but anybody who's familiar with the history of security intelligence in Canada over the last few decades wouldn't think of the name Atwal without thinking of the term Atwal Warrant, because it was as a result of a situation that arose in the 1980s mm-hmm. with this self-same Mr. Atwal. Remember that he was convicted of attempted murder hmm. of an Indian a visiting Indian minister, cabinet minister. And uh, he has also had, uh, apparently, other involvement with Canadian criminal law. In any event, um, you hear about the Atwell warrant, and it was a problem with a warrant that the CSIS, then the new CSIS, was seeking for investigations into Mr. Atwell, uh, irregularities in the warrant, that ultimately led to the uh, forced resignation of the first director of CSIS. So, again, Hmm. one would imagine that a Google or two would have been helpful. And the fact that uh, this whole issue of the Atwell Warrant had, by 1987, got to the Federal Court of Appeal of Canada with a precedent-making judgment that today, and for all the years since, has guided Canadian security intelligence when it comes to applications for uh, intrusive warrants in particular. You know, it just makes the head spin. Um, And uh, there seems to be some source that the uh, parliamentarians in their report rely on that essentially says that, uh, again, a simple Google might have tipped people off. But where the PMO, the prime minister's office, comes in in this is quite intriguing. Um, No one says that official foreign visits are easy. They are really not. And it's 
the only thing that's easy is to oversimplify uh, how 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 mm-hmm. easily these uh, visits can be facilitated because you have all kinds of interests wanting to elbow their way as guests and as friends of guests and relatives and so on into these major events to be photographed with, uh, say, the prime minister or other significant people. Um, so what but, is the significance of Atwal having that picture? What is the significance of, because he obviously knew it was going to cause uh, uh, some problems as soon as it, it became known. What's, what's in this for him? Well, I guess the same thing that's in it for any number of people, especially of, shall we politely say, questionable background, they get laundered. I mean, if you think about it, if you have, as we have had in Canada, remember Air India, as far as we can Mm -hmm. tell, was uh, the result with the deaths of hundreds of people, especially Indo-Canadians. This was a result of Sikh terrorism. And we know that Sikh Canadians have been quite an example to us, in especially the years since, in fighting off the radicals and extremists in Canada. Well, how do those many moderate Sikhs then point to this extremist or that extremist and warn the media and others about giving them unduly generous platforms when the self-same individuals appear in photographs with, for example, here, the wife of the Prime Minister of Canada. Um, You know, we see this with uh, Islamist groups. Uh, I think we've seen it with uh, white uh, extremist groups. Mm. They want to get in and be photographed. And the ideal, I mean, the ideal... It's credibility, yeah. Well, it's to get, you get photographed with a police officer, a significant police official. And um, Canada has developed a pretty bad name, I have to say, among some in India and elsewhere abroad for this kind of thing. Uh, when we saw that uh, uh, Tamil Tigers extremists, and that organization is a terrorist organization, according to Canadian law now, um, I remember hearing from a uh, former Canadian diplomat who'd been based uh, in Sri Lanka, where all of this was active in violence and so on. And he said that uh, he was told by a Sri Lankan cabinet minister that when they would look down their cabinet table and see an empty seat where one of their colleagues had been assassinated, they would then hiss the word Canada, because Canada was so associated, rightly or wrongly, in the minds of uh, these government officials with the Tamil Tigers terrorism, the fact that as they viewed it, we were allowing extremism to uh, multiply here. We were importing all kinds of people with sympathies. So is this a diplomatic mistake or lack of security? Is this about a photo op versus diplomacy? Well, I think it's a combination of all of these things. I mean, we a big chapter in this, as you know, and one of the reasons why the whole India story exploded was that um, the then National Security and Intelligence Advisor uh, went around giving background briefings to journalists, uh, suggesting that uh, a good deal of the explanation for any of this embarrassment, even for possibly the presence of Mr. Atwal at these events, or this event, uh, was the result of some sort of manipulation by Indian intelligence. And and, And your thoughts on that? What about that angle? Uh, I, it's, it's, I, I completely without evidence, as far as yeah, I can tell. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, one never knows in any of these things. Mm-hmm. But uh, in the end, it does look as though the uh, National Security and Intelligence Advisor was embarrassed by what he had said, and he has moved on to other things now. But 
you know, this, this is extraordinary. It did raise the question, too. Did the National Security Advisor, in anything that he said on background, so quasi-secretly, did he rely on privileged intelligence, in which case, what might have been his authority for this? And should it be left to uh, individual security officials, no matter how high, to be leaking information? Now, the report does not come to any particularly compelling conclusion on that question. But it is very important to know because, you know, leaks can damage reputations and, uh, and raise questions in later terrorist-related trials, too, where a defense counsel might say, well, look, uh, the government is claiming that it cannot release what it claims to be security-sensitive information. However, from what we can see, and they might claim to point to this episode, from uh, what we can see, uh, the government's standards are highly elastic. When it suits mm. them, they may mm. leak stuff, and otherwise they may not. So therefore, we insist that the government now produce all this stuff and in the course of that, then you could have a threat to the security of sources and methods. So, yes, uh, security secrecy is an important thing that's got to be handled appropriately. Uh, David Harris is with us in Cygnus Strategic Group. Uh, group. He's a terrorism expert. David, uh, what should Canadians take from this? A lot of this is in the weeds for, for the average Canadian. What do we take from this? Well, we have to make an attempt to establish some kind of consistent, credible security screening standards for guests going to these sorts of events. And that means some fairly regularized and regulated processes so that, you know, you don't have, as you seem to have had here, uh, a series of people who may have been invited in a fairly regulated way, and this is just my impression of things, and then suddenly the Prime Minister's office tossed 423 more people into the hopper presumably virtually overwhelming the capacity of uh, our security people to go through in a timely way, because all of this is rushed anyway, uh, the guest lists. Um, we, we need, again, some kind of methodical approach to this with appropriate expectations. And that means that at the political level, in other words, the Office of the Prime Minister of Canada, no matter who's in government, uh, they've got to be well aware of the pressures on their security people. Um, and we have to ensure, too, that we are seeing some kind of uh, appropriate candor when it comes to our ability as citizens to understand what the process is. Uh, at one point, the National Security and Intelligence Advisor to the Prime Minister claimed that he shared whatever information he shared uh, privately with journalists uh, because he felt there was a crisis that required clarification, a crisis vis-a-vis -vis the good name of Canada and so on. But on the other hand, all of the representatives of security organizations in Canada, as far again as the report uh, revealed, were claiming there was no crisis of any kind. So, you know, which is it? Uh, we're not really that clear on this. And now that the dust has settled, we certainly know that India was upset at the point at that point. Uh, now that the dust has settled, how, how is ev everybody uh, addressing this? How is everybody comprehending this? Well, it's not clear to me. It's not clear to me that the dust is settled. We have some recommendations, of course, stemming from the report. The report produced them, and they emphasize this importance: the importance of having a methodical, standardized approach. But here's something bigger. One of the things that is lurking in all of this, and obviously has had the Indians very concerned for many years, 
is the propensity of our politicians, MPs, the people we vote for and who work for us, uh, rubbing shoulders with ideological extremists of various categories. And on the Sikh side, as I was mentioning earlier on, we've seen the bulk of the Sikh population having had to go through struggles against radicals in their own communities, now facing the fact, and this is not a hypothesis, the fact that uh, a number of MPs have been happy to be seen on stages with uh, ideological uh, Sikh extremists. And that, again, reinforces the credibility of these individuals, their ability to uh, collect money and uh, <clears throat> become all the more heavily involved in uh, in possibly terroristic activities and certainly in divisiveness within this country and undermining our foreign relations. So uh, this is the kind of thing we really have to watch out for. And, uh, you know, Mr. Trudeau himself, not unlike a number of other senior uh, elected officials, has uh, spent time in areas that uh, some have suggested are close to uh, some fairly radical Sikh tendencies. It's all for votes. All parties do it. And it's up to us as citizens to uh, be policing them. All right, David, I can't let you go without asking you. I've only got a couple of minutes left here. Um, we've now just finding out that Alec Manassian of Richmond Hill, uh, he was the person who allegedly uh, drove the van down a sidewalk uh, on Young Street and, of course, uh, taking lives. As this uh, Now this uh, trial has been uh, penciled in for February of 2020, no preliminary trial. Uh, it looks like at this point needed. Uh, your thoughts on this moving forward? Is this, is this something we should be paying attention to? It, it, it doesn't seem we've heard a lot on this case yet. Yes, yes. You, you'll still, I presume, be in the uh, information and intelligence gathering uh, on the uh, prosecution side, certainly. And at the disclosure level, that is the obligation of the Crown prosecutors to share what they have with the uh, defense side, uh, this will be keeping everybody very active. It would have been, to again, say the least, a messy scene, so forensically reasonably complicated. And getting witnesses together, organizing them, and so on, will explain why this can take so long. But one of the difficulties in our system, and it's a, a pretty grand system when compared to all the others on the justice and prosecution side, is that it does take time to do properly. And we can, as a public, at times lose sight of developing trends and tendencies in terrorism because, again, things go very quiet. The uh, Crown cannot properly comment in any sort of extensive way about a developing trial of things under investigation. Um, and um, uh, the uh, defense generally conduct, conducts itself a little differently. But uh, you put it all together, and these kinds of events and their details tend not to have as great an impact as soon as they might otherwise, because, again, you've got all the proprieties and the mechanics of the developing of the case and its theory and so on. Now, once it hits the trial, we'll have, presumably, evidence emerging in open court, and then that becomes a kind of teaching opportunity and a learning opportunity for all of us so we can see what exactly has happened and we will generally know what evidence that has been adduced has been adduced according to uh, the laws of the country which is uh, again a very impressive standard so you can be pretty confident that you're dealing with serious material whether ultimately it uh, 
guides the final decision and judgments and other matter. But again, it's very educational. We have seen this. I remember particularly in a series of uh, three cases that the Ontario Court of Appeal produced, where they laid out the nature of terrorism in Canada and the world. And really, almost as teachers or professors, obviously we're trying to bring home to us certain things, including the fact that terrorism, unlike so many other vicious crimes, has about it a very particular quality that renders it a menace to civilized living as we know it. David Harris has been with us in Cygnus Strategic Group. He's a terrorism expert. David, it's always fascinating discussion. Thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Well, thank you, Scott, and take care. You too. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. We were talking to David Harris and Cygnus Strategic Group. He's a, ter- a terrorism expert in regard to, of course, uh, what had happened on uh, uh, the, uh, I almost said the Trumps, the Trudeaus, <laughs> the Trudeaus trip to India and such, uh, and security and uh, Jasper Atwal and how he got into a, uh, an event and, and get, got his picture taken with uh, the prime minister's wife and such. Uh Still some flack, not in regard to that, but in regard to the Prime Minister's choices. Facing flack today in regards to a tweet he sent to comedian and host of The Daily Show, Trevor Noah. In the tweet, he pledged $50 million for charity, uh, but people are calling him out for uh, the content and the forum in which it was announced. Now, is that in bad taste, poor judgment, or is it great marketing? Uh, let's bring in Alyssa Freeman. We'll talk to her on this and a whole myriad of other things. Public relations consultant and principal at Alyssa Freeman PR. She is with us now. Alyssa, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Oh, interesting times, Scott. Interesting times. Is everybody angry? You know, here's the thing. People are, they're jaded and they're disappointed. If this was a tweet from Trudeau in the honeymoon period right after his election, I don't think anybody would have said boo. And I think people would have said, wow, this is great. We have a cool prime minister when he had sort of that coolness narrative going. But now, you know, we're a year away, almost a year and a half away from another federal election. And these type of things are not playing in the same way. So when you, you know, create some sort of flippant tweet in order to align yourself or get appreciation from a celebrity, people now look at it very, very differently. So why did this work before, not now? Well, because he wasn't Stephen Harper. He wasn't some stuffy guy who controlled the government with an iron fist and was very cold, uh, you know, had this appearance of being very cold and, you know, unrelatable. Even though, I mean, you know, people can say that over the the 10 years he he did a great job. They were tired and they wanted to change. And Justin Trudeau represented you know, a breath of fresh air, young, virile, muscular, look great with his shirt off and his, you know, uh, his tattoo. So it, it was all so very new and fresh. And he was unlike any other head of state, really, at the time. So based on that, when you compared him to somebody like Trump, well, it, it was completely different. And he really represented at the time a breath of fresh air. 
but you know that worked then. What always, you know, it's interesting when you're trying to regain uh, popularity, especially in the 18 months, you know, a run up to a federal election. You're going to try and trot out some of those old narrative tropes to see what will still hit. And somebody in the inner office must have thought this was a good idea. Let's go back to tried and true Trudeau. Let's have him reach out to somebody cool but edgy but intelligent, like a Trevor Noah. And who is a little bit, you know, not, he's mainstream, but not quite mainstream. And let's try that gambit. So they tried it, and the blowback was pretty quick. So what did he do wrong here? Where did this cross the line from great marketing idea to eh, not really prime ministerial? Well, I, I think that it's just that, aren't we beyond this? Do you have to sort of get celebrity endorsement to know that what you already do is a great thing? You know, Canada is quite renowned for its foreign aid and work in foreign policy. Yet, you know, here we are trying to, you know, some of me actually think, thinks, um, Scott, that this is maybe replaces the usual announceable. So while mm. this, this was so instead of having a press conference that only you or I or people like this uh, that are into the business would would watch, this gets everyone's attention, and Donald Trump certainly showed us all how to do that. Well, you know, here you go. So let's use Twitter. Maybe somebody thought if Trump could use Twitter, certainly Trudeau could use Twitter. We're not out of the realm of using Twitter or being on social media. So it's not like we're trying something that we haven't ever tried before. But I think, you know, and also the way Twitter has been used by Trump has left people in a in a very sort of jaded state. You know, if you want to know, get the litmus test on what the president thinks, the first thing every, anybody does, including, you know, uh, mainstream media reporters, that we all go to Twitter because we know that that's a very shoot from the hip and honest commentary on what Trump is thinking. So when Trudeau tries to replicate that platform for his own use, I think that it just doesn't work. It was it was a gambit that failed. Uh, I remember when uh, he was running uh, and in his campaign, many said we, we certainly know that that Harper was using not ready. That was his angle. Uh, but I had many professors saying that it was all form, no substance, that uh, although he had the charisma and, you know, great front man, great brand guy, uh, but but vacuous, that there just wasn't a lot there. Um, can he carry this narrative uh, of, of being the hip guy into the next election? Or now is it all right? We've seen the selfies. Now we want action, whether it's pipelines, whether it's indigenous issues, whatever, because he really has proven to be the great mediator, but really can't make the call sits on the fence. Are we expecting more now? Yes, we are. And that's a really great way of putting it. And, you know, it was interesting because the conservative narrative into the going into the last the 2015 election was just not ready or he has nice hair. Well, it actually worked against them. You know, he has nice hair, you know, you know, versus Stephen Harper, whose hair was, you know, not as luscious or nice. <laughs> More like a mannequin? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, okay, you said it, yes. Yeah. <laughs> you, you see the people when they dress the mannequins in the storefronts, they put on the Harris wig. You know, the thing, you know, it's interesting. Normally uh, a politician doesn't deviate from the things that tend to work for him uh, or her. And in this case, you know, for example, when Obama ran for a second term, uh, he could still run on hope. He also happened to be a phenomenal orator. So he actually, you know, had, uh, you know, a great skill set going for him. You know, Trudeau is 
sort of, you know, neither here nor there. And, and people see that he makes decisions based on heart, and then the, the thought process, you know, tends to come in later. You know, earlier I heard you talking about the trip to India. That is, you know, the full report on that is now coming out. Is that going to, you know, bite him in the butt as it, in the lead-up to the election? I, I don't think so. I think people will sort of look at it as, in a series of things. I think that Trudeau's narrative has, you know, over his tenure has been sort of a death by a thousand cuts. And when you have faux pas, you know, on top of faux pas, on top of faux pas, then they all sort of, you know, it, get, it, gets, it gets very heavy. And people tend to vote with their hearts and then they vote with their heads. But in this case, it kind of might be the other way around. You talked about being uh, Barack Obama, the better orator. Uh, at the end of the day, that's what got Justin Trudeau where he was, uh, or where he is now. Uh, everybody remembers the eulogy at his father's funeral. That's when all of this really started. Wow, this guy's got the charisma. This guy's got whatever. But then again, over and above that, he he can't seem to get off the cue card. He can't seem to... To, 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 to show any depth with issues. You know, I was with a, a group of people the other day, and um, or maybe I was watching something on TV, and they were talking about how, I guess, Trudeau was, you know, recently at a meeting, and he had to put on a headset. I think it was uh, over the signing. That's what it was. It was the signing of the of the new NAFTA. And he put on a headset. And, and people were wondering, well, why is he putting on a headset? This is all in English. What's, what is he expecting to hear? And the joke was is that they were telling him what to say in his ear, <laughs> which, you know, could or could not be true. But he's not, he's not a great, spontaneous orator. And you see that in question. He's a great teacher. It's like a teacher. They'll rally well, the troops. You know what? He was a great front man for the party. Yeah. So the deal is, is that you always want your guy in for one term, for not one term, but two terms. You know, um, with the loss of George H.W. Bush, the one thing that that I hear, keep hearing, is that he was the best one-term president ever. Mm. Not just the best president, but the best one-term president, because along came a guy named Bill Clinton. So... You know, you never want that because it's sort of what your legacy really is. And if you don't get a lot done in one term, then you really don't have much of a legacy. So I think that, you know, in the next 18 months, well, it's even less really, um, Trudeau is going to have to take a different turn with the narrative. He's going to have to hop off of the celebrity alignment train. Mm. You know, when Bill Clinton first started campaigning, everybody remembers his appearance with the saxophone on the Arsenio Hall show. And unfortunately, you and I are both old enough to probably have seen that live. Well, he didn't do that in the second run-up. Good point, yeah. More statesman-like. It's four years years later. You have to be more statesman-like. You're running on your platform and your accomplishments. And, you know, accomplishments come and go. You know, after they caught Osama bin Laden, and uh, Obama came on TV and said that we caught him. I mean, his approval rating went through the roof. But, you know, approval ratings only last a week or two before they can start to plummet because you, you know, said something or looked at somebody the wrong way. So successes are, are very ephemeral. So if you have more, I always say that if you're at a job and you have more good days than bad days, it's all right. But if you have more bad days than good days, in this case, in the eyes of the, you know, your, the Canadian public, 
it's not all right. Uh, you brought up uh, uh, George Bush and past presidents and stuff. It's interesting over the weekend listening to uh, everybody talk about his leadership skills and such, both past and present leaders. Do you think Donald Trump's looking at that and looking inward and wonder why people aren't saying the same thing about him? Mind you, they wouldn't a Bush when he was elected, but certainly after the fact. Um, do you think he's going to learn anything from all of that diplomacy and that kinder, gentler America? Well, I don't know. I think that that kinder, gentler America is gone. And, uh, you know, I watched that um, funeral service, which I thought was quite beautiful. And Mike Pence spoke, and I thought he did a great job. And um, Trump didn't speak. And I think that that's very calculated because Trump is not that Republican. He is the disruptor Republican. He's not a Republican of the status quo. He wants to shake things up, whether he gets his way or not. Um, you know, Republicans of the George Bush era, and I always say this, of Reagan, you know, those are the Republicans I grew up with. Yes, they may have had a more conservative ideology, but still, but still, I, I didn't think that anybody would wreak havoc had they got elected versus a Democrat. Yeah. In this case, things have changed. Things have changed very, very much. So it's, you know, of course, Trump thinks about what his legacy will, will be. I think he thinks about it every day. And right now it's based on a lot of executive orders and creating the new the new NAFTA, I think he believes is a great legacy. So but it hasn't yet been passed by Congress. So I, I don't know. I Do think you think he'll still qui- he'll stay quiet right up through the funeral? Um, yeah, it, that would be interesting. I, I, I don't know. I think that when you ask me questions like that, it's always. You know, what's white is black, what's black is white, yeah. because whatever you think should be decorum, it sort of all goes out of the window now. So if something's top of mind and he can't help himself, then you never know. Uh, getting back to the signing of NAFTA, I don't think we've talked about this, but I thought it was fascinating watching the body language, especially when it came to the actual signing. Uh, the uh, the Mexican leader and Trudeau both had, you know, nice pens in their hands. And of course, uh, the, the president had his Sharpie the size of a baseball bat. And then at the end, it was he nodded to, OK, show it all, boys. And, you know, he, he kind of lifted up the document as he always does with his his John Henry there. And Trudeau just decided, although the Mexican president held it up and so did Trump, Trudeau just left his down and folded his or clapped his hands. And I thought, wow, that, if that does that speak words? You know, yeah, it does. And I think what Trudeau really wanted ultimately was for the tariffs on uh, steel to be removed. And obviously they were not. So I think that there's a lot of, you know, if you do this sort of quid pro quo with, quo with Trump. So if you do this, then I'll do that. And, you know, the that that you were promised, I don't think always happens when he says it will. So I think that Trudeau was probably justifiably a little perturbed. Uh, are you surprised that uh, uh, there's lots of talk, especially post-summit, uh, G20 summit, in regard to world order deals with uh, and, and, and putting the boots to China in regard to trail uh, um, uh, into trade deals and such? Pompeo is out trying to sell all this and, and take what Donald says and somehow put it into some form of, of policy. Um, do you think they've got a handle finally on putting forth where the Republicans party stands on issues? You know, I don't know. Cause I many are looking at what he's of... doing with China and saying, you know what, it's, it's time somebody spoke up. Yeah, I think only if it works though, Scott. Yeah. 
you know, the Chinese may look at them and go, well, you know, our economy is going gangbusters. You still rely on this, and I'm not sure who needs who more. So I think I think there's a lot of posturing that goes on, and I think there's also a lot of translation of what Trump wants to what America is going to get. And I think that what we have to hope is that the people carrying that message, the envoys carrying that message, like Mike Pompeo, can put it in a way that doesn't sound like this is an edict, but that we're willing to work together. So it, it'll be interesting to see how that all susses out, because I think there are certain other world leaders that are not scared of Donald Trump at all and not worried about what he says and know that they could have the upper hand um, in a trade deal if they wanted to. And China may be one of those partners. What about the image we saw of uh, Vladimir Putin and uh, the Saudi Arabian prince uh, doing the high fives and everything short of giving each other a noogie? That was beyond frightening. I looked at it. No wonder Trump canceled that meeting. No kidding, because there was no high-fiving for him. You know, when you see Vladimir Putin, uh, for all you know, uh, intents and purposes, a despot, you know, with uh, the Saudi prince, I mean, honest to goodness, it's like, well, you know, I chopped that guy up in a million pieces. Yeah, way to go. That's the way I know. Somebody up. That's exactly. So, that's one of those images you can. That's one of those images you could, you know, uh, have a caption contest to. That wasn't even. It wasn't even subtle. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't even subtle. If you know, if you wonder what the influence is, or if you've ever wondered, or if the, I mean, I'm sure that you know certain agencies know exactly what the relationship is. But as a, you know, the average citizen, if you ever wondered what was going on between Saudi Arabia and, and, and the Russians, and well, mm. my goodness, if that just didn't say it all, it was almost, it was flagrant. And it was almost very in your face. It, yeah. it was it was a form of trash talk to me. Yeah, good point. Alyssa Freeman has been with us, public relations consultant, Alyssa Freeman PR. Thank you as always. Much appreciated. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. This is uh, an interesting story and reminds me of that song from the 70s by Brownsville Station, Smoking in the Boys Room. This is about a high school in North Vancouver that uh, because of vaping just getting out of control, they've closed certain washrooms within the school, only leaving ones open where I'm guessing teachers can have a presence around or be supervising. And, of course, this has created a lot of stir because people are complaining, why are we closing washrooms and, and putting the rest of the students through this because of a few that are not obeying by the rules. That being said, it seems that vaping has gotten so out of control at this school Uh, It's become a very serious issue, says the principal, uh, that not only is this uh, happening, but students are arranging to meet groups by texting each other during class time, then increased hallway traffic as a result, and a general casual response from all students when they're asked to return to class. So, and it's even been said that some are even vaping in the classroom. It's just gotten out of hand. So they said, that's it. Uh, we got to get a handle on this. It's only temporary, but we're going to close some of the washrooms that we can't necessarily keep an eye on. Is this what it's come to? Is this any different than what happened in the 70s? Before smoking became uh, unglamorous and, or sorry, yes, unglamorous and, and, and rates started to decline. Let's bring in Michael Purley, Ontario Campaign for Action on Tobacco, and is with us now. Michael, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Great to be with you again, Scott. So what are your thoughts, Michael, on this? Uh, you can see that obviously the school's frustrated. They want to do something. Is, is this going to work? How do you handle this? 
Well, this is a, this is a band-aid, and it's an understandable band-aid. The, the the deeper problem, Scott, is the is the huge increase in youth vaping. Uh, Probably the increase in the states uh, has gotten most of the ink, if that's the right word, lately. But uh, I think we're going to see some data come out in the next couple of months that is going to show that <clears throat> with respect to one device in particular, one was very popular with kids called Juul, which looks a bit like a Juul device looks a bit like a, a USB flash drive. And this device is, it has just driven a huge uh, increase in teen vaping in the states. Uh, the U.S. Food and Drug um, uh, Administration Commissioner calls it an epidemic. That's the word he uses. And we're seeing this, this product uh, called Juul has landed in the Canadian market. Uh, the company announced it was coming in on 30 August. And uh, now you see Juul promotion all over the place in Ontario and in Alberta, the two provinces that have not banned promotion. And, and these products are very, very popular with kids. And the danger of them is, A, that they're, they're small, they're hard to distinguish from a flash drive. Uh, each little pod, uh, which is about the size of a, uh, well, it's, not, it's about a half inch by an inch or a couple of centimeters long, contains the same amount of nicotine as a pack of cigarettes. So mm. kids are using these. They're very popular. They're easily hidden. Uh, you mentioned vaping in class. Kids can do that. They can blow the vapor into their sleeves or their, their shirts because uh, they don't put out a lot of vapor. Kids use them. Uh, you can recharge them. They're electronic, and you can recharge them on um, a little charger that sticks into your USB port on your computer. So kids can recharge them in class. Um, it's gotten so bad in some parts of the states. In California, for example, some school boards have had to ban the presence of USB flash drives in class. That's the only way they've been able to get a handle on on the Juul problem. And this product is now all over the place in Ontario, and kids are using it. And, and the BC story is is a little bit of an extreme example, but I know lots of schools where uh, the washrooms are uh, are closed for parts of the school day. Uh, administrators are constantly checking them. Um, kids can vape cannabis as well as, as just a regular e-juice. Uh, they like the flavors, and we have a big problem. And this is different than smoking in the sense that, uh, I, I would say primarily, it's undetectable, like it was, you know, kids smoking in the, in the, in the boys' room back in the day. Yeah, back in the day, I remember doing that myself, actually. Um, yeah, it is harder to detect. And, and part of the issue here, too, is now with the legalization of cannabis, so it's just it's more available and around. Uh, kids can vape cannabis in certain devices, not in the Juul device, but in other devices. They can actually stick dried flowers into the device, and, and, and uh, the, the device has a heating element, and it vaporizes the cannabis or burn combusted, and they can vape it. This is illegal on school grounds. Uh, it's illegal within 20 meters of schools, but legalities have never stopped kids. And uh, so what, what is unfortunate here in Ontario, at least, is that the, the provincial government, Mr. Ford's government, has allowed promotion of vaping products in convenience stores and gas bars. So you have these promotions for Vipe, which is an imperial tobacco vaping product, for Juul, and for other devices all over the place in these stores. So the message to kids is, hey, you know, these aren't that bad. 
and most parents, and if there are any parents listening, um, you really need to understand that the Juul device in particular, but others that contain nicotine, can result in uh, your son or daughter moving on to cigarettes at some point. We don't know how many kids move on from vaping to smoking cigarettes, but the evidence that is, is good evidence that we have from the states shows that some do. And so that's a reason to be very seriously concerned if your son or daughter is vaping. And it, a lot of them think that these devices are harmless and they don't understand nicotine addiction. And then, especially if they're using Juul, before they know it, they're addicted. On that note, is the solution here banning them or, like smoking, education? I mean, you, you know, literally uh, anti-smoking campaigns have, have, have turned that industry around in, in a few decades. Is that the answer here, too? Is, that, is the answer to educate the kids on, on what these new devices are really all about? I, I don't think so. I, I'm not a big fan of public education because the, the evidence, uh, certainly from the states and Canada, is that public education campaigns uh, in very specific circumstances can be useful. But in this circumstance... Um, it's you, it's the, worked the, for smoking. Why, did, why wouldn't it work for vaping? Well, it didn't really work for smoking. It worked in a very specific sense where we had a waitress uh, named Heather Crow, for example, who did commercials who got lung cancer from working in a smoke-filled restaurant. She'd never smoked a day in her life. Uh, She gave a testimonial uh, that was used in an advertisement in a pub-ed campaign, and it, 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 it impacted a lot of people in terms of their understanding of secondhand smoke. But the tobacco industry is really fond of public education. But smoking rates have declined, though. I mean, so how can you say it's not working? Well, it's, it, regulation has, has been the primary driver behind all the gains that we've made, whether it's been regulations requiring price increases, tax increases, or smoke-free spaces, or controls on advertising. Now we're going to have plain cigarette packaging, no more colors or logos or anything. Those are the drivers that really work. And in this case... Uh, I think the solution would be, first of all, the Ford government should really take its regulation uh, that allows promotion and and put it in the trash because it's really causing a a problem in terms of the message that gets to kids. And then uh, what they should really do is restrict sale of these devices to specialty vaping stores, which don't allow kids in. Right now, any kid can go into any convenience store or gas bar, and there can be very large, highly visible promotions or vaping products, they're bigger than the displays of cigarettes, in some cases, than the displays of cigarettes used to be behind the counters that have now been covered up right, yeah. and have helped to reduce uh, triggering for people who've just quit smoking and also sending a normalizing message about cigarettes. Those panels, that's another regulation that's been very helpful. So I think regulation's the name of the game here, but uh, the Ford government's gone in the wrong direction on this one, unfortunately. Michael Purley has been with us, Ontario Campaign for Action on Tobacco. Michael, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks, Scott. Look forward to it again. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.